fantastic. And I would invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to continue, though it be Mother's Day and probably the reason, certainly anybody, I could stop for that and could stop for Father's Day. In fact, most often I do, but I'm not going to do that this time. And I think it's because I just did a nine-week series on the family, right? So I took nine weeks to do that series, The Gospel Comes Home, in Ephesians 5 and 6 this year, that I thought, let's just, let's just keep going. And so I looked to Daniel 2 with you. And Daniel 2 gives us really the most comprehensive prophetic picture I believe, ever given in Scripture. It covers, as you know, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the reign of Jesus Christ in his literal, physical, coming kingdom. Chapter 2 is a thrilling chapter. It will take us from earthly kingdoms to God's heavenly kingdom, from the rule of man to the oversight and the rule of God, literally and physically. The emphasis on chapter 2 is the same as it is in Daniel. It's God's sovereignty over all kingdoms, all nations, all rulers, and the promise of his coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've already exposited from Daniel chapter 1, and we saw God's sovereign display over Daniel. Now, obviously, it's his display over Israel. They were taken into captivity, but also his sovereign display over the life of Daniel to put him in a position to come to chapter 2. And then as we come to chapter 2, this is what we call uh, at least a preaching unit. The preaching unit is chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through verse 49. And chapter 2 is about his sovereign dominion over the nations. And he's going to reveal four nations as the exposition will unfold. Now, what I'd like to do with our time this morning is, and even in the few weeks to come, is put chapter 2 in four different scenes. And we're going to scenes, and we're going to see those in different acts of the historical account. And this is the word of God, beloved, okay? These scenes are going to come out in these acts. Act one is the commotion in the king's court. It's a narrative. We're going to go big picture. Secondly, is the revelation of that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And that's our goal today, to take you through Act 1 and Act 2. And some of you are thinking, there's no way Scott Artavanis can cover 30 verses. <laughs> Maybe. Just watch. I'm going to try. Next week, or in two weeks, because I'll be gone, next week is the interpretation of the dream. Daniel will interpret that for us of what Nebuchadnezzar saw in these dreams, plural. And then finally, in Act 4, 
is the promotion of Daniel. So there's commotion, there's revelation, there's interpretation, and there is the promotion of Daniel. Now, what I want to do with you is I don't want to read through all 49 verses. I could do that. That would be fine. But maybe with it being the Lord's table today, and maybe because it's narrative, I'm just going to read it to you as we go. Okay, so with open Bible in Daniel chapter 2, if you didn't bring a Bible and you're a guest with us, we're so thankful that you're here. There's a Bible under every other seat in our worship auditorium. But let's look at Act 1. Act 1, commotion in the king's court. And in Act 1, there are four movements that lead to that commotion in the court. And I think you're going to see through Act 1, the tension is high. So here's the first movement, is the king's dream. The king's dream. Let's pick up the text right away. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams so that they came in and then stood before the king. Now just, I, I pause on this. In the second year of the king, king's reign, it's likely the third year of his reign. Sometimes when a king would ascend to authority, they would put it in the ascension years. And sometimes uh, the Jewish people would account this ascension year when Nebuchadnezzar came to power. They would count that as one of his years. But in the Babylonian uh, culture, they wouldn't count his year of ascension. So when it says here in the second year, it's likely at the third year. So just as Daniel was trained for three years, I kind of believe the sequence is this, that as he was trained and raised up with favor from God, it's in that ensuing year that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And you can see there in verse 1, his spirit is troubled by this dream or by these dreams. It's, it's the idea here of a deep disturbance inside him. And because of these dreams, the king couldn't sleep. You might even say that the king was suffering from royal insomnia, okay? Certainly the anxieties of the day, as one writer said, become the monster's of the darkness. He goes to sleep at night and he is in a deep, deep disturbance. And you just have to stop there just for a second because Nebuchadnezzar was in control of the whole known world at this point, but he couldn't conquer his dreams. Night after night, frustration, even anger, the mental and emotional uh, turmoil was paralyzing to Nebuchadnezzar. So what he does is he summons his brain trust. He summons his think tank, or maybe another word, he summons 
his advisors. You say, well, who are they? Well, look at them in the text. To be brief here, they are the magicians. Who are those? Those are the fortune tellers in his brain trust. In fact, you remember back, it was the magicians in Egypt who sought to overshadow Joseph in Pharaoh's court. Now we're in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and part of his brain trust is magicians. And then secondly, there's enchanters. You say, who are those? Those are the astrologers. These type of people followed the stars. They charted the position of the stars, and they did that in order to predict the future. They are like those today who follow horoscopes. So he's having this dream and he's troubled. And so he calls in the magicians. He calls in the enchanters. He calls in, thirdly, look at verse 2, the sorcerers. These are the mediums of the day. These are people in the culture that used herbs and charms and potions and they often dealt in the demonic realm. They are new age mystics. I would even put the word here, these are those who are involved in witchcraft. They delved in witchcraft and demonic. So you got the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and then the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are two meetings. One is just ethnic in nature. They're the Chaldeans. But more than that, the other designation of this class was a group of priests that were wise men. And that's the use here. And so from both history and even archaeology, the Chaldeans, that fourth group, had these things called dream manuals. And these dream manuals were just volumes that they would write on a particular ruler and his dreams. And by these dreams, they would predict the future. They categorized all of these dreams systematically to determine the effects of what followed in a ruler's dream. So he calls for these men. You say, well, what happened? Well, look at the text in verse 3. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. In other words, he calls here for the scholars. He calls, frankly, for the occultist. He calls for the channelers of the day. And they are summoned by the king. And he wanted the wise men to reconstruct the dream and tell him what the dream meant. Now, it's hard to know if Nebuchadnezzar knew the dream, if he had the dream and he can construct the dream and he wanted these occultists to interpret the dream. There's many people who think he didn't quite know how to make sense of even the dream or even knew the facts of the dream, but the word is here that he calls these advisors, this brain trust, I want you to reconstruct the dream for me and tell me what it means. You say, well, how did they respond to that? Look at verse four. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation.'" 
Now, just a footnote there, they spoke in Aramaic. This portion of the word of God is in Aramaic, all the way from chapter 2, 4 to the end of chapter 7, or all the way until the beginning of chapter 8. It's written in Aramaic. There's a couple other places in the scripture that are written in Aramaic, and people say, well, why wasn't it written in Hebrew? And I would say it's pretty simple. They're in Babylon. That is the, what they call the lingua franca of the day. They spoke in Aramaic. They wrote in an Aramaic form, which was called cuneiform. And so from here, as these Gentile nations are ruling, they come into the king and speak Aramaic to him. It's the main language of the day. And I think as I read that verse, the brain trust said, tell us your dream and we will tell you its interpretation. In other words, king, if you divulge the contents of the dream, it could have been they're saying, then we will be able to snow you. Maybe. Or, or maybe this just had never happened and they could never interpret this dream. And so there it is. There's the, the king's dream. But there's a huge problem here though. And it leads to the second movement in Act 1, the, the king's demand. The king's demand. Look at verse 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. It's interesting that just in verse 5 and 6, three times, he says, tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. I think what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if you're so wise, tell me the meaning before I give you the facts. Answer me, Nebuchadnezzar says, or you will be destroyed. Maybe that's not a strong word. I'm going to tear you limb from limb, and I'm not going to go into the history of Nebuchadnezzar. Believe me, he would do that if you wanted to read some of the annals of history. I'm going to tear you apart limb by limb. And so here is his demand. And obviously the court magicians and the others were horrified. They are going to be cut to pieces. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, prove the accuracy and reveal this dream and this interpretation or I will dismember you limb by limb. You say, well, what did they say to that? Look again at verse 7. They answered a second time because they've already answered in verse Four, but they said in verse seven, let the king tell the servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. Repeating verse four. You say the king, how did the king respond? Well, he's livid. I mean, he conquers kingdoms, takes them by force and power. And yet you can't interpret this dream from me. 
He's so angry. Look in the text at 2, 8, and 9. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak a lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, again, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar says, you understand, you're stalling. You're lying, maybe. You're waiting for this season to pass. Maybe he was saying, you're manipulating. I mean, this is commotion in the king's court, and it's getting tense in this place. You say, well, what happened? There's the dream, there's the demand. Thirdly, here's the wise men's desperation. The wise men's desperation. What is it? Well, in verse 10, they're desperate. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Wow. In other words, they just say this is humanly impossible. And Nebuchadnezzar, no one has ever asked for anything like that before. You, can, you are asking what no mortal man can answer. Only deity could reveal this. It would have to be miraculous. It would have to be supernatural. I mean, this is quite an admission from these men, isn't it? In all their learning, in all their worldly wisdom, they are bankrupt. It's a picture of our United States right now. I mean, no matter how much we know and how many problems we can solve, we are bankrupt morally. And here is these men saying, no one can do it. They are desperate. You say, well, how did the king respond to their desperation? Here's the fourth movement. is the king's decree. The king's decree. Look at verse 12. Because of this, it's not getting any better. The king was angry. And then the text says, and very furious and commanded. It's not just... This is not for show. He commanded that all the wise men in Babylon be destroyed. There's no threat here. One, two, three for obedience. That was it. So the decree, verse 13, look at it in the text, went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, I'm not sure exactly why Daniel and his friends 
weren't with these others of his brain trust. Maybe they had just graduated top of the class and he pulls in only the senior guys. But here that decree went out and the death was given to both Daniel and his companions to kill him. So here's the king's decree. They are toast. Toast. And it includes Daniel and his three friends. They will be executed. I think Nebuchadnezzar reasoned this way. If they can't do their job, then why have them on my staff? Almost sounds like Trump a little bit in his past record. If you don't do what he wants done, he'll just move you on, okay? And here, far worse, he makes a decree to execute them all. Beloved, he is in a rage. You think you've seen people mad. This guy is angry, he's furious, but he has the power, he has the control, he has at least the human sovereignty to do whatever he wants. There's act one, that's commotion in the king's court. It is intense, but it leads to act two, which is the revelation of the dream. And it goes from 14 down through verse 30. This revelation as well can be seen through four different responses. You say, well, what did Daniel do when he was about to be killed? First is his petition. His petition. Look at verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men in Babylon. In fact, look on again. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to God. What a, here's, here's his petition. He, he just, it's hard to identify it, but this is remarkable composure. This guy's 18. The death warrant goes out. Remarkable. In fact, you'd have to say that Daniel's the utter opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is most powerful man in the world, but he's fearful, he's angry, He's anxious, he's tyrannical, okay? And then there's Daniel. He has discretion. He has, if you will, reasonableness. He has the word there, discernment. He has what I would call just a tactfulness. And he does this all before the commander of the death squad. (laughs) It wasn't like some servants came to notify him. Arioch comes. He is the king's executioner. This is the guy who deals the death blows to anybody who Nebuchadnezzar would render that threat to. And Daniel says, why is the king so urgent? Uh, In other words, he is a soothing balm of comfort 
in an absolute sea of turbulence. Say, well, what happened? Well, here's the petition. Look at verse 16. And Daniel went in, he got an audience, and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I mean, this is incredible. He's not only standing before Arioch, but now he's standing before King Nebuchadnezzar to himself, with, by himself. You know, it's fascinating. He gave the wise men no time. You're waiting for the season to change. He gives them no ability to go back and look at their dream manuals. But Daniel is granted time. You say, well, why is that? Well, if you go back, just to remind you, in Daniel 1, look back there, probably because of this, in 120, after he spoke with the four, in 120, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. So it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar knew of their reputation, knew of their character, knew of their proven worth. Look back again at 117, where as it says, for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And here's the key in 117. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and in all dreams. So here first, here's the petition. He asked for time, okay? But it leads to the second movement, his prayer, Daniel's prayer. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went out to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, Verse 18, and he told them, precious, to seek mercy or compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. He goes out. Can, can you imagine being there? He leaves the presence of Arioch. He leaves the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. He tells his friends, I got an audience with the king. And they're saying, what did you say? You're still alive. Maybe some had already been murdered by that point. And he, they, they ask him, what did you ask for? He said, I asked for time. And so he comes back and the first thing he does is he grabs his friends and they pray. And they pray to seek mercy from the God of heaven. Can you imagine that? He goes, I'll make this analogy to you. I don't mean to moralize the text, okay? But he goes into the prayer closet. I just, I have to just say I, I love that. Prayer here is for mercy and compassion because his very life is in jeopardy. And so he prays to the God of heaven. I'm asking, what do you do in the midst of crisis? Hey, listen, 
I don't read your emails, but I'm imagining you've come in today in the midst of maybe a hard year, maybe a crisis, maybe a crisis that you have no answer for. All I want you to know is he leaves the presence of the king, grabs his friend, and I'm thinking they drop down to pray. Now, I don't have time here. We'll look at the rest of the book of Daniel, but would you turn just to one place in Daniel? Look over at chapter 6. Remember when the decree that um, manipulatively went out that anyone who bows to another God than the king would be thrown to the lion's den. So it's kind of amazing. We're in Daniel 6 now. Therefore, and I'm picking up in 9, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And the injunction was anybody who bowed to another king than the king of Persia. It says in verse 10, when Daniel knew the documents had been signed, he went to his house, just like he did in chapter 2, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his, what, knees three times a day and prayed, and I love this, and gave thanks before his God. And then the best part was this, as he had done previously. As he, I mean, he prays, and we'll see this in the rest of the exposition. He doesn't go out and hide. I mean, if, let, let me just change the analogy. If you went to the doctor and you had an outstanding blood test and you had a rare condition, what would be the first thing you would do? It could be the first thing you would do is get on Google and find out what this is, what they say about it, and you would read everything. Listen, I just want you to know the death warrant was moving. The executioner came, and rather than calling other people or maybe moving to Google on a bad physical report, he's praying. And he prays. What's the first thing you do when you come into a difficult crisis. Oswald Chambers said this, we tend to use prayer as the last result, but God wants prayer to be our first line of defense. This is what I see in Daniel. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. In fact, when Daniel was Uh, tested, he prayed, and so should we. Whatever test you face in life, pray. Whatever fears you have in life, pray. When you're anxious about something, pray. When you need wisdom, pray. When you're afraid of the future, pray. When you cry about something in your past, pray. When you need to know God's will, pray. Paul said pray without what? Ceasing. This is what Daniel does. At the time of his and their greatest need, he's dependent upon God. But before approaching the king, he does something else. 
before he goes to the king. So here is his petition, give me time. Here is his prayer. He gets them on their knees, if you will. And then thirdly, in this second act, is Daniel's praise. His praise. Look at 19 through verse 22, where it says, as after they prayed, ha, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. Then, here's the next step. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might or wisdom and power. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. What is he doing in his praise? Well, beloved, again, not just to pull this out, but he's citing the attributes of God. You would have thought that the first thing he would have done is, Lord, thank you. Thank you for sparing me. Thank you for sparing my three companions. We're all teenagers. Thank you. Well, he's going to do that. That was a request, but the next step is his praise here. And he praises God for his wisdom and might or his wisdom and power that belong to God. Wisdom, briefly, is the knowledge, is knowledge and the capacity to make decisions. You can't be wise if you don't have knowledge, but you can have knowledge and not have wisdom. He's been given knowledge and wisdom, and then he's been given power, which refers to the ability to affect a decision, and that power is there seen in the next phrases, phrase, that he changes times and seasons. In other words, he's praising God that he's in control of all historical events, that God himself in the text there removes kings and establishes kings, he put Israel, the southern kingdom, in deportation three consecutive times. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the Lord gave him into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom, I love that phrase, and knowledge to men. He's the revealer here in this dream of hidden things. In other words, our God, your God, reveals what is concealed. And then I love that phrase, he knows what is in the darkness. Even as I speak, he knows what is in the darkness. Lots of darkness in our land, but we often think about our land. So I went on uh, open doors that as I speak around the globe, they estimate that 360 million believers are being persecuted for their faith. You're thinking about California, rightfully so. You're thinking about the upcoming election, rightfully so. But our God knows even what's in the darkness. It actually is comforting to me. 360 million people, and they have a top 50 chart. You can go get on that. 
And maybe that's something we should pray for, the top 50 persecuted countries and why. And at the top of the food chain is North Korea. And this is what's going on. But listen, here he's praising God that he gives wisdom and knowledge to men, that he reveals hidden things to people, that he knows even what's in the darkness. And then he also says there as he finishes that, that light dwells with him. How encouraging that is to Daniel and his friends and to the nation in exile. How encouraging it is to you and I that light dwells with him. And so he begins to praise God for his sovereignty. He begins to praise God for his attributes. And then what? look what happened, verse 23. To you, verse 23, oh God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise For you have given me wisdom and might, he says, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And so from his petition to his prayer, to his praise, and finally to his proclamation, say, well, what happened after this? Therefore, verse 24 It's after his praise. I I mean, I just stop. It's just convicting. Men and husbands, your thermometer of the Lord will be in direct proportion and mine to the praise that comes out of your mouth. And either coming out of our mouth, we're filled with the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Or out of our mouth, comes contentious, backbiting words that don't build up. But I'm just telling you, this guy was filled. His very life is just moments away from being, his head being severed or being torn. I take that literally limb by limb, but God gives him the dream. Now pick up verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not, and I kind of take it boldly, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king his interpretation. Then Arioch brought the king before brought Daniel before the king in haste. I mean, he was hurrying. (laughs) And said thus to him, I have found, a little bit prideful, I think, don't you? I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the king, verse 26, declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Stop there just for a second. He says, I have found the man. I think maybe Arioch, maybe he's just padding his own account and he seems to take credit for what God had clearly done. But I want you to know there's not an ounce of that in Daniel. Look at verse 27. He doesn't come off proud. He says, he answered the king in 27 and said, no wise men, enchanters, 
magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. No one can do that. Verse 28, underline this. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. Now, stop there just for a second. He, I don't think he's just talking about Neb, Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's going to be for the latter days, all the way to the end of the world. And you need to come to hear the prophecy that is unfolded in the rest of this chapter. But he's going to tell them what's going to happen in the latter days. And it's somewhat tender because I think what troubled Nebuchadnezzar isn't just his kingdom. It was his life in the latter days. But Daniel's going to take us way beyond that. You say, well, what happened? Look at the text in verse 29. To you, can you just imagine that moment? O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would, what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, humble humility, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. There's act one. It's intense commotion in the king's court. But then secondly, the revelation of the dream And you might be saying here, what was Nebuchadnezzar's dream and what is the interpretation of that dream? Well, you have to come back in two weeks, okay? You got to come back. Maybe I'll just keep reading though if I can. 31, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. In fact, here's the dream. The image, mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, uh, its middle and of thighs of bronze, and it had the legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out. Just imagine as he's listening to this. Cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image praise God became a mountain and filled the whole earth this is the dream and now I will tell you its interpretation you O king the king of kings to whom 
the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory. And then he goes on to explain what that image was. But all of them, beloved, let me encourage you, are going to be crushed at the coming literal physical reign of Christ. Because look at verse 44. And the days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, there he is again, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end and Praise God, it shall stand, what? Forever. That's the kingdom that our Lord inaugurated in the New Testament that came and is already, but we sometimes like to say, and not yet. His kingdom reigns in our hearts today, but there is a physical, literal coming kingdom, and Daniel's gonna unfold all of that. And I just wanna take a moment as we go to the Lord's table, listen, you're part of that kingdom. And I want to encourage you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in what? Vain. Stay faithful. Would you bow your head with me?